0: Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome Coronavirus 2, also called SARS-CoV-2, is the virus that causes COVID-19. So these are different things, even if they're often used interchangeably. The former is the virus. The latter is the disease caused by the virus. But the virus that causes the COVID-19 disease has, like every other virus, mutated to get where it is today. Just like other sorts of life, from bacteria to turtles to humans, viruses evolve in usually tiny ways. From generation to generation, and because their generational progress is rapid by human time scales, that means they evolve fairly quickly from our perspective, us being a species that has decades long generations, rather than generations that basically shift every time a new host is infected. Because of this tendency of life to rearrange genetic information in small or occasionally somewhat dramatic ways, In order to better compete and continue to pass on their genes, life also tends to iterate and shift and mutate, though the terminology on this can also sometimes be a bit opaque and misunderstood. Case in point, a disease variant is a genetic variation of a main strain, so it's distinct enough to be differentiated from other variants but not so different that it has become its own strain yet, which requires substantially more differentiation, and which typically arises when members of a species are genetically separated from each other, evolving after that division in accordance with very different environmental pressures. That said, the concepts of strain and variant are artificial, in the sense that we kind of just made them up to help us organize the world a bit better, and to help us more concisely explain degrees of relatedness. So basically, different strains means a big bundle of differences between organisms with shared ancestors, and variants have more in common but are distinct enough to have become their own thing, even if they're not yet distinct strains. Until recently, COVID cases caused by variants were labeled with a collection of different nomenclatures, depending on where you were in the world. The first variant of concern to be tracked, for instance, was called B.1.1.7, or 20IV1, or VOC20DEC01, depending on who you talked to. This variant then became known, in the popular press, as the UK variant, which wasn't ideal for many reasons, but in particular because the UK, the United Kingdom, was just where it was initially identified and defined, not necessarily where it arose, and because the implications of having a potentially deadly virus named after your country is typically not ideal For your global image and tourism industry so in late may of 2021 the world health organization announced that they would be using greek letter designations for important strains that they were tracking and encouraged the rest of the world to do the same in large part to help incentivize the identification and tracking of new strains rather than continuing to disincentivize such efforts Because those doing the work might come to fear that they would bring stigma to their country's reputation if they were too successful, identifying a new strain, but then as a result accidentally getting their nation's name on that strain with all of the negative implications that comes with such a moniker. Thus, the aforementioned variant formerly known as that flurry of letters and numbers and then as the UK variant is now called the Alpha variant. A variant discovered in South Africa is Beta, one found in India is Delta, and one identified in Brazil is Gamma. These variants have a range of different demonstrated properties thus far, and though we still know less than we need to know, To have truly solid numbers on this, the research that's already been done indicates that they have between 50 and 160% higher transmissibility compared to vanilla COVID 19. They result in somewhere between 52 and 85% more hospitalizations. They have about 50 to 59% higher mortality rates. And a few of them seem to reduce the efficacy of antibodies found in people who have received covid vaccinations and though at the moment that decrease doesn't seem to be massive there is concern that as the virus continues to evolve the variants that will do best that will survive and thrive will inherently be the ones that can spread to inoculated people within the populations that they are busily infecting So that there is already some reduction in vaccine efficacy is worrying because it hints at what may be just the beginning of a snowballing genetic trend in that direction. What I'd like to talk about today, though, is one variant in particular, the Delta variant, and why it is in the news so much right now, what it might portend for our collective efforts to end the pandemic and how things are already changing as a consequence of its presence. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from the Wall Street Journal, and it's entitled, France reimposes restrictions as Delta variant spreads. This piece is in some ways of a kind with a torrent of other big news source articles that have been published over the past few weeks as a slew of international happenings have been attributed to the emergence of and concerns about the Delta variant of the coronavirus that causes COVID-19. And although in some cases these concerns might be a bit or even completely overblown, it would seem that in some instances at least these precautions and adjustments are probably warranted and perhaps in some cases not even going anywhere near far enough. Before I jump into that though, The big story in this journal piece is that France is deploying measures that add up to, essentially, a collection of vaccine passport-like restrictions. If you're not vaccinated against COVID, or if you haven't provably tested negative recently, you will not be allowed to visit bars, cafes, restaurants, malls, shops, to take long-distance trains, and to use other similar public, often indoor, spaces. France is not the only European country making such a move at the moment. The moment, by the way, being mid to late July 2021. The Netherlands also recently announced that it would be reimposing restrictions on nightclubs and music festivals mere weeks after relaxing those restrictions. Greece has announced new restrictions on their restaurants and indoor entertainment venues, and German leaders have said that although they are not currently planning to go as far as neighboring France with their own requirements and restrictions, the success or lack thereof of the local vaccine campaign will determine the country's next steps in this regard. Such restrictions, new Renewed and ongoing would seem to be prudent in these areas, as Greece has recently seen its highest case rate in two months. The Netherlands saw its numbers increase sixfold over the course of a recent week, and France's numbers are not looking good. After going from around 42,000 new weekly infections in mid April to around 2,000 in late June, their weekly infection rate is back up to around 4,000 as of mid-July. Not anywhere near where it was before, but such doubling is how the previous waves in this and other countries have initially manifested. A seemingly small increase that then balloons into something nearly unbelievable very rapidly because of how such diseases spread, one person infecting multiple people typically. Part of why France is taking such a hard stand on this, though, including requiring all healthcare workers to get vaccines if they want to come into work, is that their vaccination efforts have slowed, in large part seemingly due to what's being politely called skepticism about the available vaccines in the region, and because the majority of new infections are being caused by the Delta version of this coronavirus. The sluggishness of latter stage vaccine efforts in the wealthy world is disconcerting for many reasons, but perhaps even more so is the nature of the Delta variant, which, based on recent surges in Spain and around other parts of Europe, tends to infect young people more readily, people who are already less likely to be vaccinated and more likely to be around other potential hosts because of the differing social habits of young people, but also school and festivals and the like, but also because it seems to be more resistant to antibodies granted by vaccines, antibodies generated by people who have had other versions of COVID-19, and because it seems to be more overall infectious, more likely to cause hospitalization, and more likely to cause pneumonia or other serious symptoms that require oxygen, if the infected person is going to be kept alive. This is the variant that seems to have caused India's dramatic and devastating second wave of infections, after the country seemed to have managed its way through the world's first wave without too much trouble. Its numbers were fairly unremarkable by global standards in 2020, but in early 2021, it overtook Brazil in having the most ongoing cases in the world, with around 2.5 million reported cases in late April, an average of 300,000 new cases and 2,000 official deaths a day, all numbers that are considered to be perhaps substantial undercounts of the true numbers. And on April 30th, 2021, those official probably undercounted numbers were up to 400,000 new cases and 3,500 deaths in a single day. Now, India was not The best prepared government in the world for this, and part of why those numbers were so high, was that they had serious trouble trying to get enough oxygen and other materials to save the people who were being brought into hospitals. There just were not enough supplies, and eventually not enough healthcare workers, to take care of everyone. But that wave is thought to have been so serious. In contrast to the first one, which did damage, but nothing on that scale, Because of the Delta variant, which was originally mapped and identified in India, has mutations that seem to make it substantially more contagious, more likely to infect more people across more demographics, and more likely to cause serious harm to those infected. It is also seemingly more likely to infect those who have had vaccines, though we still don't have enough data to say for sure how much more likely. On that latter point, there is very mixed messaging about how effective existing vaccines are when it comes to handling the threat posed by the Delta and the newer so-called Super Delta variant, which we know even less about but which seems to be even more effective at spreading and perhaps more dangerous as well as of the day I'm recording this. Part of that mixed messaging is the consequence of conflicting reports from different sources Some of which are saying the two main big mRNA vaccines in particular, those made by Pfizer and Moderna, seem to be effective against the Delta variant, if a little bit less so than against earlier vanilla and alpha versions of the disease. Something like mid-80s to maybe low or mid-90s percent efficacious, as opposed to the mid-to-high 90s that they have against earlier variations of the disease. Health officials in Israel, however, which stands out as one of the most vaccinated countries in the world right now, have estimated that the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine is only something like 64% efficacious against the Delta variant, based on their on-the-ground experience so far. These estimates from these Israeli health officials have been criticized and contradicted by other health officials and studies from elsewhere around the world but there's still a whole lot we just don't know, which means we can't just ignore this kind of data. We have to consider that some of our most seemingly successful vaccine options in the sense of protection, but also distribution, might not be as effective for some variants as they are for others, even if we don't know the specifics of that claim quite yet and the degree to which it might be true. Adding to the confusion Is speculation about whether a vaccine booster shot will be necessary or even useful. Some studies have indicated that the Pfizer vaccine, and quite possibly the Moderna vaccine as well, because they're predicated on similar concepts, could protect against coronaviruses causing COVID 19 regardless of their variant for years, while some studies, including one conducted by French researchers, the results of which were recently published in Nature, suggests that because of mutations to the Delta variant's outer spike protein, which is part of what makes it so transmissible, Delta can partially sidestep the body's immune response to the disease, including the pieces that are primed to deal with invaders that look a lot like it does. Interestingly, the main takeaway from this study seems to be that while a single mRNA vaccine shot Was decently effective against the original COVID 19 all by itself. It was either ineffective or barely effective against beta and delta variants of the disease. But after receiving a second shot and having some time to develop new antibodies as a consequence of that vaccine, efficacy against both beta and delta was up to the mid 90% based on this study. So this is suggestive but not definitive. The study was based on blood samples taken from 59 people after they had received doses of the vaccine, and then checking, basically, to see which samples were able to neutralize delta and beta variants of this coronavirus in the lab. So much like the Israeli estimates, this is useful data, but still unfortunately quite incomplete. Other data informing the conversation around how we deal with Delta and what we can expect from it is maybe, at least partially, the consequence of economically inspired bias. Pfizer is in the process of trying to get a third shot, a vaccine booster, approved for use in the EU and United States. This is causing a bit of geopolitical turbulence because first, much of the world still hasn't received even a first shot. Second, most data we have at the moment indicates that a single shot is better than nothing, a second shot provides a great deal of protection against effectively all variants, and a third shot has not yet been shown to be necessary. So the idea of the wealthy world mobilizing resources for more shots for itself before helping the rest of the world to get to their initial pair of shots is quite an unpopular concept in many circles. Now that said, there have been some rumblings, mostly from Pfizer, that the benefits offered by a dual dose of their vaccine might begin to wane after about six months. So Pfizer stands to benefit massively financially If they can justify selling more doses of what's already proven to be a very financially successful drug, and if they can demonstrate that this is something people will need to continue receiving at a regular cadence, that would be even more of an economic feather in their cap. As of the day I'm recording this, evidence of this claim has not been made public by the company, and only Israel has approved the use of a third shot for those who want it. The United States agencies responsible for such things have said that it is a no-go for the moment, but that they would be watching the data. And EU governments have essentially said the same, though all of these entities have left the door open for change to their policies should the data eventually warrant it. We may, just by waiting to see what happens, learn a bit more about this variant and the effect that vaccines have on it across a society in the relatively near future, because right across the channel from France in the United Kingdom, the government has decided to stay the course with a planned Freedom Day, which is set for July 19th, as of the day I'm recording this, so there is a good chance that it will already have happened by the time this episode goes live. The government has already pushed this day, the day when most local pandemic related restrictions will be lifted, back by a month. It was originally intended for June. So it would seem to be unlikely that they will delay it again, but you never know. Local health officials are saying basically it is not a good idea to do this, to remove essentially all pandemic era restrictions, when this new variant is now so dominant in the country, and at a moment when their infection numbers are actually surging, which they are right now. But the UK government seems quite keen to move forward with this, for reasons that make a lot of sense through a certain lens. They want to get their economy back up off the ground, which means encouraging people to leave their homes and get out and about and do things, to encourage businesses to open up without limited capacity numbers, to drop mask requirements and to stop the curbs on pub and club operations. And they have had a very successful vaccine campaign. 66% of the adult population in the UK has received a full two doses of a COVID vaccine which means a significant chunk of the adult population has something close to full immunity, if not full immunity, which doesn't mean that younger people are protected, and it doesn't mean the unvaccinated are protected, and it doesn't mean that those with vaccines are fully protected, because even a, let's say, 95% efficacy leaves what amounts to a 1 in 20 chance of not being able to fend off the disease if you would otherwise certainly contract it and more people out and about commingling and crowding together makes such a circumstance more likely than when we are all spread out and socially distancing and keeping our spit to ourselves by using masks. That said, the government dropping restrictions in this way, at a moment in which they have reached a relatively high level of vaccination amongst their adult population, provides a sort of on-the-ground test case for whether or not it is safe or advisable for other countries to do the same. The UK has a chance of benefiting massively if they can make this work, allowing them to spin up their economy before all of their neighbors and competitors, figuring out how to manage a situation in which COVID becomes something like a background concern a bit like the flu, and not as bad as it otherwise would be because of the pseudo-herd immunity potentially offered by a mostly vaccinated population. And it would give the politicians currently running things enhanced credibility as leaders willing to take risks in a world in which doing so has a decent chance of turning out very badly for those who take them. Bad for their careers, but also their reputations because of the potential loss of life amongst their constituents that could result from even very well-thought-out gambles that go sideways. So this is a calculated move by this administration, but it will certainly be educational for the rest of us, living in a world that seems to be moving slowly towards some kind of eventual destination but not quite sure when we'll reach the finish line. There's a chance we will need to vaccinate literally everyone to get rid of pandemic conditions, but there's also a chance that we've already reached that point and just don't realize it yet in some parts of the world. The contrasting approaches being taken by the UK and France will provide some interesting insight into this quandary, though it will almost certainly like everything else connected to this pandemic, also be significantly politically fraught, and both socially and medically perilous at times. We will likely, as a consequence of the larger pandemic, but also because of the emergence of new variants around the world, see more variations on the UK and France models, with some countries taking extra care and being especially cautious, unwilling to potentially sacrifice any lives to amp up the economy, and opting instead for, at times, somewhat unpopular policies like vaccine passports and mandatory vaccine orders for some or all industries, while other countries try something like what the UK is attempting, dropping whatever restrictions they can justify, giving the public a warning, basically saying it's in your hands now, be responsible, it's probably smart to keep wearing masks, but assuming, internally, that a relatively sparse percentage of the population will actually do so, and then watching to see if that approach results in a big surge of infections and deaths or not, and then acting accordingly. Among the many other unknowns with either path, and the spectrum of other paths in between those extremes is whether or not Delta increases the likelihood of what's currently being called long COVID, a variety of symptoms that don't seem to go away when the core disease goes away, and whether the pockets of unvaccinated people in countries around the world, often because of their politics or religious beliefs, but not always, will serve as hotbeds for new variants that then go on to infect others, The Delta variant can infect folks who have had previous versions of COVID, after all. So there's a chance that groups that refuse to get vaccinated will basically just pass variant after variant around their communities, giving the virus all the more opportunity to mutate and try out new powers. That is something that has happened with other diseases in the past. But we don't know with any certainty how many people are required to create that kind of mutation-happy hothouse atmosphere, or how likely it is that more contagious vaccine-dodging variants might arise out of a group of people who lack those sorts of antibodies in the first place. It may be that the disease will just get worse and worse for non-vaccinated people. We just don't know enough to know how likely any of this is yet although it's prudent to be considering it just in case so we're not caught completely off guard. In the meantime, we will likely continue to see events canceled, economies expanding and contracting based on expectations of some kind of future return to something approximating normalcy, tribalistic divisions between people who are vaccinated and those who are not, breakthrough events that result in vaccinated people becoming infected, which is normal, by the way, and not an indication that vaccines don't work. But that is something that could become more common if new variants emerge with more potent inoculation-dodging powers. And we will almost certainly see at least a few moves that end up being the wrong moves. And those may prove particularly disconcerting because it will likely mean new surges that didn't have to happen in areas that were otherwise doing everything right, with a whole lot of individual human beings suffering as a consequence of those wrong choices that, for all the people making those decisions could guess, from their perspective at the time when they made them, might have ended up going the other way entirely, potentially to everyone's eventual benefit. (music) The book that I'd like to recommend today is one that I read a long time ago, but I recently reread it when I realized I couldn't remember many of the details about it. I think I read it maybe in middle school. It's called The Demon Haunted World Science as a Candle in the Dark by Carl Sagan. Now, many of you may already be familiar with Carl Sagan and his work. He is, in my opinion, one of the better science communicators that's ever lived in terms of making it accessible and interesting and appealing to so many people. And this book is a good demonstration of why and the depth and breadth of his communication skills in that regard. I will say that some of the current event and political references are substantially dated because he wrote this a while ago, but the important parts, basically demonstrating what science is, what critical thinking is, and how we can approach things with an open mind but also be critical about them, that stuff holds up and is incredibly timeless and not just timeless, but also very well explained and expressed, and presented in such a way that it makes you want to do better at all of these things, while also getting excited about the potential of things that we don't know yet. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of The Demon Haunted World by Carl Sagan. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript of this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsnowthings.com. You can find my other podcast, Brain Lenses, wherever you get your podcasts, or at brainlenses.com. You can subscribe to receive an email from me every morning in which I curate and summarize the news for you at onesentence.news.com. And please do feel free to reach out and say hello on social media. I am Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on Twitter and Instagram and such. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week.